This is Tell Me What to Read, the podcast from booktopia.com.au. I'm Mark Harding, and I'm thrilled to be bringing you three very different conversations today. First, Christos Chalkas, author of Slap and Damascus, talks about his new novel, Seven and a Half, with Ben Hunter. Then, Ben meets best-selling thriller author Sarah Foster to talk about her new book, The Hush. And in our final conversation today, psychosexologist Chantelle Otten talks about her new book, The Sex Ed You Never Had, with Stefania Campogna. Check the show notes for timestamps for each of these conversations. Now it's over to Ben Hunter for his chat with Christos Chalkas. Christos Chalkas, thank you very much for being with me on the Booktopia podcast. How are you today? I'm, I'm doing very well. Thank you for having me again. It's, um, yeah. it's a pleasure to be in the digital zone with you, Ben. I just appreciate you being real space. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you for you know, doing it like this to oh, make it happen. And, um, and thank you for this new book, Seven and a Half. It is, it's really special and it's, it's blown my brain to pieces. Um, so congratulations. Thank you, Bill. Should I apologize for that? <laughs> for blowing your no. mind? Okay. No, um, not please. at all. No, thank you. Thank you very much. Um, this book, it, it takes the reader into a very private space where the author himself is in a beach house about to begin writing something. That's, that's, that's where we start. He's not even sure if he wants to write a novel or a screenplay or something else entirely. He's just trying to force himself into that state of production. And many creative people, when when asked about that that genesis state or that production state, that they're, they're really hesitant to give an answer about it, or they're, they're quite negative about it. They, <laughs> um, they, they say it's very boring and, and, and sometimes painful and awful. Uh, so. So why did you want to take the reader straight in there as an author? To be really honest, the, uh, the, the, the first impulse was disregarding all those questions, right, in terms of the reader. Yeah. It was more, um, uh, 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 and I will be, I'm going to use this uh, word in its rightful, right sense, I think. It was an exercise for me, right? I was, I was working on a, another book. Uh, with a working title, Resentment, which was a, a much more traditional fiction, trying to make sense of uh, the culture, the politics, the the tempo of the time, if you like, and it was going nowhere. It was just, you know, when you, I'd, I'd had about 35,000 words and I was boring myself, and if you're boring yourself, you know you're going to bore everyone else. It just, it, well, it didn't have a spark of vitality in it. And then I started writing Seven and a Half, and I started writing it. I said, I said to myself, I'm going to just sit down every morning and the first thing I'm going to do is write at least 800 words a day and see where it takes me. I had a rough idea of what the novel was. Uh, the, the title's a homage to, to a Federico Fellini film, Eight and a Half, which is about a filmmaker played by Marcello Mastroani who... Uh, and puts himself in a, a retreats from the world for a bit because he doesn't know what he wants to make a film about. So that was my situation as a writer. And I started writing and I have to say it was, it just flew. And even very early on, it had a joy in it and, uh, and a kind of risk to it that I knew wasn't in the other novel that I, that I was writing. And I quickly, I quickly put that away. Uh, it was... 
you're right about that. You know, is you know the challenge in a way was, is this just going to be a diary note? Uh, and I realised that very, very, almost immediately in the process, it wasn't going to be a journal. It wasn't going to be a memoir. It was my wanting to do a work of fiction, but actually just push myself more than anything um, to see what fiction is, what fiction could be about, what, you know, why am I being this thing called a writer, particularly in this time when there's the, the, the zeitgeist is full of questions about who has the right to write, whose voice should be heard, what is the subject of writing, what is the point of fiction. Um, and seven and a half is just my attempt to, um, to take a reader into what those questions mean for for, for for someone writing in the world today. I, I, I need to, and this is a bit of autobiography about a book that is a pretense of an autobiography, if you like, you know, because mm. as I said, it's a fiction, um, but it's using the, for me, what, I'm, what I wanted to use, if you like, the, the tropes of memoir and autobiography in, in, in the fictional sense. It, I had uh, just come back from overseas with Wayne. It was middle of March. I'd been away for only nine days because in the UK we were going to start a, a, a driving trip for our 35th anniversary and then something called COVID hit. And the yes. world literally changed within that week. I, you know, we'd landed in London on March the 9th and uh, we were going out with mates and drinking in the cold and hugging and kissing and embracing. And literally within that week, suddenly there was social distance. Suddenly you couldn't get a flight out. We were incredibly fortunate. Um, we were in Scotland at that point that uh, we remembered we booked a flight with a travel agent who is one of my heroes and I will never ever book online again. <laughs> I'm always going to go because he managed to, uh, to get us a flight. It was a Sunday morning in Scotland. He was here in Australia. He got us a flight in half an hour. And I'm not kidding you, Ben. Uh, I had been on the phone to uh, the, the airline. Uh, the, their computer system had crashed and I was told it was going to be a nine hour wait to, to get to speak to someone. Just to speak to um, someone on the was, phone. That, that was how mad it was. Like the, the world was just full of desperate people uh, wanting to get home. And uh, second day, of, uh, we were lucky. We got that flight. We were lucky we could quarantine at home. Then hotel quarantine had started. And the second morning of that quarantine, I woke up and started writing seven and a half. The publisher tells me that, that this just exploded out of you in a, in a joyous burst. That's, that's, a, that's a stark contrast to your big, dark and brooding and beautiful novel, Damascus, right? That was, yeah. It sounds like an almost polar opposite writing experience, right? Oh, completely. Like, you know, you, know, we've, you and I talked about this um, when Damascus came out, Ben, you know, that I actually didn't put pen to paper with Damascus until I had done a year and a half of reading, just immersed myself in theology and history and philosophy and then oh my friend it was uh it was it was a, it was a different kind of joy i expressed it to you and it, it's true that it felt like being a student for the first time working on damascus uh so to say that there, there wasn't joy in that or pleasure would be wrong but it actually felt like physical trudge i felt like trudging through mud at points because it was so hard draft after draft after draft to get the language right 
with Damascus because of what I was. Um, whereas seven and a half, it, it flew. It flew in that almost, and that's where it gets hard because you don't want to use kind of mystical language for something that is also about work. You know, I, I, I said it was, it began as an exercise about craft, you know, to, to keep myself writing. But I was just in, I, I enjoyed it in a different way because I mind, mind my memories. Uh, it made me remember what it is that I loved about fiction. It made me, it made me dare to write about beauty and to write in a, in a way that was, I, I hope, both honest but also uh, intricate. Um, now, there was a different challenge with Damascus because that was about getting a language that would convince you, Ben, that you had, had within a few sentences or a few paragraphs, stepped into an, an ancient world. That's a different kind of challenge. This is, a, you know, this is contemporary language. This is a contemporary book. But it is the challenge of Seven and a Half is whether I can take you into the consciousness of being a writer and excite you as a reader. Mission accomplished. Uh, mm -hmm. It's it's brilliant. Uh, <laughs> Thank you. Uh, the quest for beauty. It's um, it's really that's the arc of the thing, right? That's that's what we follow you down, and and immediately that takes the reader into the author's youth and the discover of the 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 kind of discovery of desire and sexuality and and the evolution of love um it is uh, very special there's some of my favorite parts of the novel to read could you give the listener just a taste of the sights and smells of that migrant community in in melbourne uh that that you take the reader into so one of one of the um the challenges in a rate of seven and a half um Poses uh, for for themselves is um uh, is this book going to be a memoir uh, and and in that challenge I thought well I am going to go back to the earliest memories and my earliest memories are full of uh, sight and smell and sound you know so and and that that's always been an important element I think for me Ben as a writer but it was actually uh, and this is part of the joy of writing it. It was trying to put myself in the body of this really young kid, first experiencing the um, uh, that that world, and uh, and and realizing that there was a magic to that experience. That I, you know, I had maybe I'd forgotten about. Maybe that was part of the joy of of, of writing it. So what, what what you know, there's a very very early on, there we're taken with um, this really young kid into a Greek Orthodox church, which was in Richmond, uh, in in Melbourne, and it's it is the the smell of the incense, right? It is the sound of the liturgy, the the chanting. It is uh, the, um, the 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 smells of the um, of the candles that are burning in the Arcanostasis. Uh, but it's also the, the hair and of, of the women. It is the skin of the men. It is the smell and sweat of, of men. Um, and they are 
intoxicating and arousing. Um, and in writing that particular early sequence, uh, I, I, I realised too that I, I was talking to someone about this just the other day, and maybe that this is uh, something that is particular to my time and place for a history both individual and social but this is the late 60s early 70s that would be the early 70s I guess um, so it's just before the great transformations or just at the beginning of the great transformations of sexual politics uh, um, it's the recollections of a queer adult thinking back to his childhood and realizing that Eros was there right at the beginning <laughs> Right, really early on, and eros is sensual and eros, as sensual and eros as sexual as well, and that 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 was part of the joy too. Um, to 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 say that the search for beauty for myself is 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 uh, it can't be separated from from the erotic, and that isn't just uh, beauty as innocence. That's also beauty is danger. You know, that, that's, that's well something said. that became really, really important in the writing of, of this book. That if you really are going to challenge yourself to write about the meaning of beauty, you can't simply be a romantic about it and you can't sanitize it. And that's why I begin with a Genet quote, you know, for, for, because for me, for me, Jean Genet is one of those writers who made me understand that there is. Uh, pleasure and danger in the notion of the beautiful and the erotic. Yeah, it is. A, it's a it's a fabulous epitaph. How does it go? I want to I want to read it out. Novels are not humanitarian reports. Indeed, let us be thankful that there remains sufficient cruelty without which beauty could not be. Do you know? Uh, that's, yeah, it's interesting. Every uh, I, I, when I discovered that, in, um, uh, I remember rereading Genet. Uh, that was. Um, uh, a few years ago, so I, I had uh, uh, I just decided there'd been a long time since I uh, had read his work, and I went back to uh, uh, to his books, and I, that quote just leapt out at me. It leapt out mm. at me because of its truth, and it leapt out to me because it's a challenge for writers writing in this time, where so many novels are humanitarian reports and there's i mean it's hard i i i understand that's that sense and the importance of that but for me that felt like a uh that felt like permission and a release when when i read that it's and what's it's funny every writer that i've talked to not only writers actually filmmakers uh artists i've talked to and um and i've quoted that Genet line they all pounce on it and go yes <laughs> 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 because otherwise what's the point of doing what we do what is it that you know this is for me central to seven and a half right if fiction if we can't write about the central and the beautiful and the dangerous and if we can't take that risk if fiction can only be denuded now if it if it has to avoid large chunks of our humanity then uh, then let us be documentarians. Let us be something else. Let us be journalists. But that's not my. That's not why I fell in love with writing. <laughs> that's so. I, I wanted to explore what it is that fiction can do, and I think the 
the connection for me, and this is part of the discovery in writing Seven and a Half, is that you can't sequester the beautiful from the erotic. And I would say, and this is uh, this may sound equally contentious, you can't sequester the the beautiful from the sacred. Uh, and I feel like with um, with Seven and a Half. It's a book that would have been impossible for me to not only write but to imagine without having done the work on Damascus. You know, I think the shadow mm. of your last book is there when, when you begin something new. And it felt like uh, Damascus had allowed me to give voice to uh, experiences that I had removed myself from uh, because of my anger and my confusion about the traditional history of the church as an, uh, as an institution and to go actually know that there is something about uh, the sacred that is important that I want to communicate. And maybe that, that importance is doubly so because for too long the sacred has been something that has been denied to, to, to queers <laughs> in a way. Yes. You know, so that's, I, I think, yeah, I, I don't know if that... Uh, that make, does that make sense? That, 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 it absolutely that, does. Right. Um, I want to tell you this. Uh, when, I, when I got a copy of this book in the post and started reading it, um, I mentioned to a colleague, I've got a new novel from Christos Chalkis. And they said, oh, great, what's it about? I love him. And I said, well, it's, you know, the author is present in the novel and it's about the quest for beauty and is that you know how, how to reconcile that or make sense of it in in this kind of cataclysmic um 21st century and this colleague she said oh this this sounds so reminiscent of this new sally rooney novel which is called beautiful world where are you where <laughs> you know this famous irish author is a central character uh in the novel and and that baffled me, it bamboozled me. And I would have said something, you know, elegant in reply, like, oh yeah, but nah. And I did read and enjoy the, the Sally Rooney novel. She's a, she's a very clever author and um, she has everyone talking. And um, one of the things I, I read kind of in response to this novel on the internet um, is a kind of think piece that that positioned her um, in a long-standing shift away from uh, narrative voice in modern fiction. You know, it, in it, it, it framed it um, as uh literature of pose as opposed to literature of voice and i thought oh that's that's something and that was ricocheting in my brain when about 70 pages into this novel the author is in a close to screaming match with his sister uh, can, can i read a, a a small section of beautiful rant it's, uh, I, you, you can indeed but it's not uh, his sister it's a friend if we're talking about Andrew, it's a friend yep 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 yes Okay, it's a friend. Thank you, pardon. I want to read. You asked me why this novel is treacherous, and I'm trying to explain it to you. I was sitting up straight now, the laughter gone. I know that there is so much happening that should concern me, 
I shut my eyes and recite her list. Crisis and revolution, war and bushfires, the pandemic and the shifts in the superpowers, all that and more. But there is nothing I can offer any more to illuminate any of that. And these days when I read novels that are all crisis and revolution and war and bushfires, I am nauseated by their arrogance and naivety. Every bloody novelist sounds the same now, whether they are American or Austrian or Angolan or Andalusian or Australian, all the same can't, all the same desire to shape the world to their academic whims and aspirations, all this compassion and all this outrage and all this empathy and all this sorrow and all this fear and all this moralizing and not one sentence of surprise in any of it. I puff furiously at my cigarette. Not one moment of beauty. I don't want to write that fucking book. And then I add emphatically, I'm fucking sick of that novel. <laughs> uh, so, <laughs> sorry, uh, post, post uh, a language warning. Um, how do you feel about this idea of, of pose versus voice in modern literature? And I guess, you know, what do you think the novel like not your novel, but the novel, the form, the medium has to do in, in the 21st century? I'll take um, a step back and then take the two steps forward. But please um, corral me in if I'm, I move too far away from the, from the question, Ben. But uh, just to, in that section with Andrea, uh, that is a polemic because they're both doing polemics, right? Andrea is uh, someone the author loves. They have a very, very old friendship stretching back into decade, decades, into university, you know, when they were very, very young. And she's very committed to the work she does, which is uh, she's, she's worked in, uh, in social justice, let's call it, for a very long time. She too dreams of being a writer. And she has a particular idea of what the novel should be. And the narrator of Seven and a Half understands that uh, but he's also arguing for the novel to be something else. Something else. And what happens in the um, in the argument is, as happens in arguments, you take these positions, and they may not be able to encompass in the actual speaking through of the argument or the yelling of the argument the the, the full range of contradictions that you're aware of when you when you have the space to 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 take a breath, right? But there is something central there. Yes, I am arguing against the notion that has been over uh, has been always been there since i've begun writing about you know what is the function of the novel uh, uh but it feels like that uh idea of what the novel should do has accelerated over the last 10 years 15 years so that it, it you know it needs to it needs to change the world um i completely understand the romance of that notion i really Trust me, I really understand the urgency too of that um, of that notion. Some of the novels I most love have taken that at their centre, but they also have done something else. You know, they've 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 also so really going right back to something like Steinbeck's *Grapes of Wrath*, which did change aspects of the world, uh, but it also communicated what it was to live in the world of poverty. Uh, it, it, it gave a voice. It is really the simplest thing to do, to look back at someone like Steinbeck and go, he wasn't, he wasn't part of the Dust Bowl, right? He had no right to write that novel. 
he had, you know, that it was a, a, a pose. I understand the political position that gets you to there, but I actually don't believe it's true at all because I also think he wanted to give a voice to something that was genuine, that, that was animating, and that he knew he could do as a writer of fiction, is put you into that, into those shoes of those Okies in the Great Depression. I, I mentioned Grapes of Wrath because it was my father's favourite novel, um, because he read it, and his reading was really, really slow. He only had two years of primary school, and I found a copy in Greece a long time ago and got gave it to him and he read it really really slowly over a long long period of time and loved that novel because it communicated something about a poverty he knew and i'm getting quite emotional thinking about his response so to your question i want to write with voice i don't want to write as pose mm. i can play with pose and there is playfulness in seven and a half that's part of its joy and as i said you know i'm very aware that it is about christos Cholkas, but it's also fiction <laughs> But yeah. uh, the truth of the play is, I hope, more than me just posing. It's more than me just being uh, world-weary. <laughs> you know, even when the, the character uh, rants in that way to his friend, uh, uh, when he goes off to the sea that night and thinks back on the argument and what, it, you know, I hope there is a real sense of the writer wanting to think, how is it that I can give voice to something, <laughs> you know? And I feel like the either or that we're playing at the moment, or so many, it seems to be in the culture, and this is all accelerated through social media, that the novel has to be this or the novel has to be that. I don't think the novel just has to be about beauty, and I don't think the novel just has to be about politics. It can be... I don't think it just has to be about rage and I don't think it just has to be about love. It can be about all these things. It seems to me, however, that the notion of, it, of saying that there is something beautiful in the world that I want to give expression to, it just doesn't seem to be, you know, it just seems to have not been prevalent in a lot of the work I've been reading. And I... I I wanted to I wanted to give that voice. I wanted to hear that voice. I wanted to understand that voice. I wanted to change, to chase rather, um, that voice in, in, in writing seven and a half. And, and again, you know, none of this would have been possible without Damascus. You know, when you when you read out that that um, argument between Andrea and the, the narrator, there. Uh, and uh, apologies to to listeners who don't know either the you know know my works, but you know there is in Damascus an argument uh, near the end of the book between Paul, the, the same Paul of the Bible, and Thomas, who I have made the the, the twin of um, you know Jesus, and it's actually the same argument, and that's what I you know that that Thomas is saying, yes, there is shit in this world. Right, there is suffering in this world, and I, uh, the whole story within the story of uh, seven and a half is about confronting what that suffering is. Or, uh, but if you ignore the moments of stillness to also contemplate what is beautiful in the world, I think that you do yourself a disservice, but you're also doing the 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 the, fun the um 
the art of function uh, are disservice as well. You know, it, it seemed to me, and again, this is where the connection, you know, to, and, and using a word like, like the sacred is an understanding I got through all that research and all that time and all that labor with Damascus is that sometimes I listen to myself as a left person. I listen to my friends as progressives. And I think that I'm fucking back language warning in those Bible classes of the evangelical church I was in for an, a year and a half as a teenager. And it's always about the bloody world to come. <laughs> and when ignoring the the, the, the world as is, how, you know, that beauty, and again, uh, you know, beauty not only as romance, beauty not only as that which is lovely and transforming to contemplate, uh, a beauty that is also harsh and difficult and ugly, and that's part of the terrain of, of, of seven and a half, to, 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 to chase that, that notion of beauty into Hades. <laughs> You know, he goes to the under he goes to to the underworld in order to discover what fiction can be, what beauty can be. Hmm. Uh, I couldn't imagine being more daring than you already are, Christos. I appreciate everything you do, and thank you very much for giving me some of your time today. Uh, big, big thank you. Now it's over to Ben Hunter for his chat with Sarah Foster. Uh, welcome back. I'm Ben Hunter and I'm with Sarah Foster. Welcome to the Booktopia podcast. Nice to be here. Thanks for having me. Uh, I want to dive straight into this new novel, The Hush. It is absolutely brilliant. Uh, it's kept me up at night. Uh, <laughs> I think three things work together to make it really effective. Uh, it, it has a, a world that is scary and real. It's a, you know, a, a very real socio-political reality and I think the second thing is within that frame you've got these incredible uh, female characters driving the story it's an intergenerational story and then the the third thing is some really sharp uh, clever writing just pushing the whole thing through so could we could we break it down into the the three could you begin by telling us about the the, the world you imagine for the hush. Yes, well, you've picked on all the things that I wanted to bring out in the hush. So thank you very much for that. Um, yeah, so the world I imagined for the hush was trying to just push the boundaries of where we are right now without actually realizing where we were going to be when the book came out, which because I started writing this in 2015. So really, my first approach was I was looking at it more from a feminist side of things and how mothers and daughters are often separated in fiction, how the generations are often pulled apart in fiction. And I looked at that quite extensively to begin with, and I didn't know exactly how I was going to build the world for probably a couple of years. I was really working on the characters first. And then I was looking for my way into this world. What could be happening in this world? What could be happening in this world? And eventually I realized that the situation was these unexplained stillbirths, which was awful when I realized it because it's a horrible, horrible thing. Um, but it was also intimately connected to the female experience and 
at that stage, we hadn't had the pandemic situation that we've had. So it felt very much like a futuristic approach to a book. And really, I, as I've been writing it, I have been changing it and changing it and tweaking it because events have unfolded alongside the writing of the book. And it's just become ever more relevant and topical, which has been quite scary. It certainly has. Uh, can you introduce us to the two female characters whose perspectives you shift between? You've got the teenage Lainey and her mother, Emma, who is a midwife throughout this whole crisis. I found them both really relatable and brilliant in their own special ways um, and just believable. You know? <laughs> they're not superheroes. <laughs> they're just regular people um, in incredible circumstances. Uh, what can you tell our listeners about those two? And their estranged Australian grandmother, Geraldine. <laughs> Um, yeah, well, I do like to write about regular people caught up in extraordinary circumstances. So these two are very much that. Emma is a single mum. She's a midwife at the local hospital. She is just a hard worker, wants to help the women. She's always wanted to help the women who are giving birth, but particularly in this current situation where they're under so much stress, the government have really clamped down on women's rights. So they've got a lot of surveillance going on even around birth. They've got cameras in birthing rooms to try and record what's happening so they can figure out what's going on with these babies. She is very much coming from the angle of what it's doing to these women. And she is fighting back wherever she can against this kind of slow creep of intrusion that's actually tearing these women apart psychologically just at the moment we're on the cusp of a change in, in becoming a mother. Um, so she's very involved in that, but also has a 17-year-old daughter that she really wants to care for and connect with. And of course, as um, as there's a way with teenagers, Lainey is getting more and more independent, growing apart, wanting to do her own thing. Uh, Emma has not got that quality time available to her because of her work to stay connected to her daughter, which again, I feel like is very topical for many women nowadays with uh, full-time work, um, particularly single mothers, of course. Uh, and so despite this yearning to connect with Lainey, Emma is feeling the gap. And I think Lainey is too, but in a much more, um, she doesn't directly acknowledge it. You know, she's not aware of it as much as a teenager. Uh, but Lainey is a student at the local high school and she goes to school with the son of one of the um, politicians. He's the health secretary. And so she is hearing a lot about what's going on in the government side of things. But also one of their friends called Ellis has gone missing. She was known to be pregnant. She's the same age of them, 17, and she's been missing for a while. So Lainey's really caught up in what's happened there as well. And these kids are just um, in such a stressful environment, really. They are not only watching that happen, they are aware of creeping climate change. It's kind of not mentioned heavily in the book, but there's this general background of floods and all sorts of things that are going on, melting icebergs, and they are trying to react. They are trying to be empowered as teens and take control and have a voice. But again, the actual surveillance and the government clampdown on freedoms is extending to teenagers, protests, all sorts of things. So they're finding it really difficult to have a voice. Mm. Um, the one thing I found particularly creepy is the watches they have to wear <laughs> they can track their location and and they're not quite sure you know who's watching uh and uh are they being listened to 
and there's 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 this there's a there's an element of oh they wouldn't surely who would who would be listening like who would care but also what if they do care <laughs> absolutely <laughs> and my friend is my friend is missing um it really gets the the hairs just raising on the neck uh, because it is um it is so close to our own experience right now at the same time as as being you know it, it fits the format of the dystopian future novel uh it it yeah. does feel super timely in the political climate to say the least um i understand you you mentioned a, a doctoral study that you've been doing um but you've also been writing a number of thrillers honing your skills over the years as a novelist <laughs> um in the psychological thriller sphere um how has that kind of prepared you for this novel in a sense and and um how has your writing changed over the years yes well i love writing thriller-esque books that have that pace behind them but also speak to contemporary events and social commentary and different things that are going on so in earlier books i have looked at lots of different elements of contemporary society so in shallow breath i was looking at um, how people relate to animals and animal rights and in all that's lost between us i did kind of the slow creep of social media into teenagers lives and what that meant and how it affected a whole family um, i think the difference with this one is that i often like to look at things on a very personal level how it's affecting the intimacy of relationships and and the mystery is in that intimacy but this one is completely different because it's got that political backdrop that world building backdrop and i think i needed to have the practice to have a bit more courage to take on that massive world build because that's a really big challenge to organize everything and to keep both stories flowing to keep the big sense of the uh, the overview of the world going on uh, and also this very personal story about these women i mean i know you asked me about geraldine last time i didn't get to geraldine but you know the the glory of these women is that um they are that emma and laney are just living very ordinary lives yeah but they have this amazing grandmother as well geraldine who is very outspoken and has been for a long time about female rights and what's happening in general in society so there's a lot of different takes from the female perspective in the book i didn't want to write a mono female experience i wanted mm. to absorb as much as i could of um different experiences perspectives things that i'd read about and these different characters bring out all those different elements of the book into the world you know, into that crazy world that's going on and, and provide a kind of a multifaceted view of everything that's happening yeah geraldine is 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 interesting she's she's very separate from emma and laney um and and into her own kind of echelon she's uh you know she's a tv talking head and uh <laughs> um a kind of feminist icon she does people are getting books signed and such um and there's should there's tell a, you as well can a, i oh sorry can i yeah, tell you something on, about yeah. geraldine um, i should tell you that when geraldine first came along she'd been waiting in the wings in my story for a while and i wanted to write from her perspective and it never quite worked because it diluted the emma laney back and forth it just didn't she just couldn't 
come in and uh, it slowed the pace of the story down and so I had to put her in third perspective and but I felt like she was bursting to tell me all these things that she thought I did feel like she was living in my head and when she finally got to speak she did this 20 page manifesto of all her beliefs <laughs> and I was just wow. I felt like she was channeling you know through me and I was just typing away and I thought right I've got to condense this right down but again I find that if I start thinking about Geraldine I can almost hear she's so proud and out there and you know she's so convinced in what she believes in and so convinced that she needs to push for change that she just is very loud even in my head even now <laughs> i love that um and it's, it's it's very interesting seeing how she can intervene um with emma and laney when she hits the fan um she she has an influence certainly but uh in this um very scary and rapidly changing world it it, it, it you know you're distressed to read that it, it falls short um and i so i was so um on board with um <laughs> this novel ending um uh, you know at like page 100 i was i was so sure that like everything was going to be fine <laughs> you had me you had me <laughs> Um, you had me just like oh, breathing a breath of relief, and then you you pulled the rug out from under me. It's some uh, very sorry. effective. <laughs> how do you how do you manage to um, how do you manage to tie in a doctoral study with a pacey thriller like this? Yeah, well, the doctoral study is actually looking at um, what happens when the mo mother is missing in fiction with young female heroines, particularly dystopian fiction. So my theory that I've been working on is that these girls look really empowered. So we've got like a whole range of um, young women that we've seen over the last couple of decades, like Katniss from The Hunger Games, yeah, and there's been Divergent and Only Ever Yours and lots of dystopian fiction coming out where the mothers are missing. Um, in some cases, these girls look really empowered, like they're taking on the world, but actually you find that there's nothing in there to show them what's going to happen to them when they become older. And then there's almost a suggestion that they are going to become invisible in society as they age. So how much are we talking about full empowerment and is that really you know the case that these women can take on the world if they're then expected to fade in society after they've won a battle yeah and so i wanted to look at what happens because the mother is missing and bringing the mother back into the story and try and see what that did for the younger characters i know that there's a trope of taking the mothers out of the story or the parents out of the story because it suits the narrative it allows the kids to have agency but because that's now so common i wondered whether there's something else that we're actually saying by cutting out that generation and i'm looking at mothers but you could easily look at what it does to um, men as well fathers and sons and so by reconnecting the lines i wanted to tell a different kind of story of the fact that if you have all the generations in there it doesn't necessarily disempower the younger characters because depending on what those characters do and how they work together, it can actually be a really empowering, amazing experience for them all to be together. I love that. And what a, what a story you've told. It's just, I think it's brilliant. Um, I can't <laughs> wait for people to be reading this. Uh, what, what direction do you think your writing might take next? 
Oh, that's a very good question. Um, because I have a story that I want to write that's set in Perth, which is where I live. Um, and it's about a lady who used to be uh, a detective in the UK and various things have happened. And then her daughter um, goes missing while she's working as an au pair in Perth. There's lots of other elements to that story, but I was starting to flesh that out. Um, but then I've always had the idea that the hush isn't finished. And as I I'm working on the hush now, the characters are still talking to me and I'm going, oh, are we going to go back in this? And I'm thinking, we haven't really had that conversation with my publisher yet. So <laughs> it might be um, yeah, a conversation we need to have. So I could go in either direction. I love working on the close psychological thrillers where it's those really close relationship family stories with a mystery inside them. But I also really love this world. I don't necessarily feel like we've finished with that world yet, but we will have to see. Oh, you heard it here first. Sarah <laughs> <You> Foster. <did. laughs> Sarah Foster, thank you very much for being on our little podcast today. Thanks for having me. It's been great. Now it's over to Stefania Campogna for her chat with Chantelle Osen. I'm Stefania Caponia, Booktopia's non-fiction category manager. Today, I'm delighted to be speaking with award-winning psychosexologist Chantelle Otten about her new book, The Sex Ed You Never Had. Hello, Chantelle. Hi, thanks Hi. for having me. You're very welcome. Thank you for your time. I know you're a busy woman. <laughs> so, um, look, before we get into the book, just if you can explain to people what a psychosexologist actually is. Yeah, so basically it's, you know, I'm someone who studies sexuality and I focus on improving people's sexual lives through therapy. So I am a therapist who specializes in sex. I run the largest sexology clinic in Australia. We have a team full of other sexologists. We sit down, we do talk therapy um, and, you know, we try and, and work from a really holistic point of view on, on making people feel good within their sexual lives and free of pain or discomfort or dysfunction. And so how did you discover this career? And was it something early on that you knew you wanted to do? I wouldn't say that sexology was on <laughs> my list of things that I wanted to be when I grew up yeah. um, because I really didn't know that it existed. So I, um, I, I always wanted to help people. You know, I come from a family where like all they do is help others and i have a sister with a disability so we were very involved in the in the disability community but also you know my parents would like build women's shelters build hospitals in papua new guinea and i guess for me it's always been super normal to be in a role where you are trying your best to help other people so psychology was like a really natural way for me to go um because i'm also curious into like why do people work the way that they work um and beyond that i finished psych and i just kind of thought i don't know if i want to be a generalized psychologist because i don't think i'm patient enough you know i'm kind of a bit more like you know, I, I want to, I, I couldn't sit with people for years. I'm not that strong. I think like psychologists are very strong in their dedication to that. Um, and I, I was, you know, a bit, a, I was, <laughs> I'm a bit fun and flirty and I love talking about things that are a little bit taboo. And so 
my mom recognized that in me and she sent me a TED talk by Esther Perel, who I'm sure most of the listeners would have heard of. She's a famous psychotherapist. She lives in New York. She's originally from Belgium and she focuses on the nuances of relationships and desire and infidelity. And I was so inspired by her work that I thought, well, I want to do this and I really want to talk about sex and I want to see like why people are the way they are in terms of what's going on in the bedroom. So I did my science in med, um, specializing in sexual medicine degree. And I also moved to Amsterdam at that time to learn how to be a sexologist. They had really great, um, a really great community of sexologists there. You know, they have the European Society of Sexual Medicine and I was really welcomed uh, into that community. And I learned so much also from my mentor, doc, Dr. Ingrid Pinas, who you know, she mentored me for years and taught me how to do what I do. So I, um, I was lucky. And then I came back to Australia when I was 26 and started my clinic. And it's all like a bit of a whirlwind from there. So yeah, you mentioned that you had to travel back to Amsterdam to, to train. Mm -hmm. You mentioned that in the book. Mm -hmm. So um, why do you think in Australia, there's still so much taboo around sex? Is it improving? And can people train in the same field now? Has it changed since? Yeah, so, great question. So I think I definitely have noticed a huge change. I think that it's taboo in Australia because it just wasn't prioritized as part of the sexual um, education, like just part of education in general. I think there was like a lack of knowledge. We are also a multicultural society. So we really did have to rely on schools to provide that sex education back from my generation and maybe your generation as well. I didn't I didn't really get a good sex education. Um, I know that that is improving and we're, we're kind of getting there. And, you know, I want to shout out to all the the health teachers out there that are doing their best, you know, thank you. Um, I, I also think like now I see it changing. Now I see sex becoming sexy again. You know, it was like always like a little bit taboo and like a little bit like behind closed curtains kind of vibe and yeah, a bit red light district, which is not for everyone here. Um, and now I see it becoming a lot more sexy. It's become commercialized. You know, we're seeing it in fashion magazines. We're seeing it, um, you know, we're seeing sponsors from major companies. And I'm an ambassador for Bumble and for Love Honey, who are huge companies here in Australia. And they're talking so much about sexual wellness. So I see it changing and I see it getting even better as we go along. Um, and I'm hoping, you know, with people like Grace Tame and Chanel Contos, who are working so hard on um, changing legislation as well around like consent culture. I think that we can see a, a positive future coming. So now talking about the book, mm -hmm. let's move on to the book. Yes. How did it come about? What was the, where did the, pro the idea for the project come? It came about because I just noticed that my patients and my followers were asking the same things. And so many of them just had such a lack of knowledge around sexuality, you know, even just about like naming their genitals, their menstrual cycles, like what, what was going on in terms of how their, their body reacted to arousal, what an erection was like, it was all questions that we should know, like a foundation, really. If you look at the book, it's not telling people have to, how to have like wild, crazy sex. Like it's telling people the absolute foundation of what we should have learned in sex education in school. And it's a lot of stuff like that we should have learned that we really, we really weren't given the tools to understand. So it came about just because I saw 
it's not so much a gap in the market. It was just like, I needed something to give to my patients so that they could, you know, skip forward a few weeks in terms of their, their um, training with me and really get to the point where we focused on how to improve rather than just lay a healthy foundation. So was the initial audience that you had in mind your patients and then it expanded? For adults. I mean, if I look at my followers on social media and the patients that come into my clinic, they're generally age 20 to like 45, 50. Mm -hmm. So literally like that age range was what I was looking at. And now I guess anyone who feels like it relates to them or that they can learn from it or even teach their children about it or their little ones, go for it. You know, I think it's a helpful book for that, for that kind of knowledge. Would you ever consider doing a specific one for schools? Potentially, potentially, I will admit, like, it's not my domain. Mm. You know, I am an adult, like I'm, I'm, I work with purely adults. And I think if I was to go into these, like, the school, like area, I, I would really have to, I know that the, the foundation is in this book, I think I would really have to learn and work with others who specialize in that area to make sure that we do it in the best way possible. But I, I know from like, when I was growing up, like the Dutch sex ed books are really um, a lot more progressive. And my friend Sandarin actually wrote them. They're cartoon books and they talk about consent, even in terms of like, if you want a hug, like how to ask for a hug, you can't just go hug someone. They talk about blended families. They talk about different orientations from age four upwards. So if you get that kind of picture in mind, you can see that why there is such a big difference between countries it's like some European countries and, and Australia. Yes, yeah. Um, okay, we, we were talking a little bit earlier as well about um, the, in the, the, the media and, and the um, idea around sex, right? So you've got a podcast called The Seal Section on Mamma Mia. Yes. So for many years, my generation, I remember Dolly Doctor <laughs> and the seal section in Clio. And I know that a lot of people were using those forums to get their information. Mm -hmm. right? So how do you think that the internet, social media and podcasts have changed access to and the quality of information since magazines have died out? Well, I think social media has been massive. Like if you don't, like if we have magazines dying out, people turn uh -huh. to either Dr. Google or they turn to social media. And, you know, I think I feel very blessed to be amongst like a huge range of other sex experts who are online and we work so hard to give out information. You know, we don't get paid to put out this information. We just are doing it because we want a sex positive future. So it is accessible for everyone. Of course, social media accounts like myself have got concerns around, um, what would they say? Like Instagram rules? <laughs> like, um, and they, platforms like social like like instagram like tiktok they really try and censor you quite a bit so it's not as accessible as i would love it to be but it's still doing a really good job and you know for every one question that someone asks me in clinic thousands of people on my social media accounts will ask the same thing you know so if i can spread that word mm -hmm. i am helping people but we also have to understand like putting out that information takes time and energy and effort when when you're already helping so many people through yes. therapy as well 
Mm. It's a platform to give to to reach a lot more people. Yeah. But, uh, yeah. Um, okay. Your book also addresses the issues of um, shame and poor body image, which have been around for years. Sadly, still there. Mm-hmm. Um, so, can you tell us a little bit about the, what you see as the main causes of shame uh, and how they negatively impact our sex lives? I think shame is so ingrained in all of us. It just attaches to different things. For example, I don't feel shame around sex, but I feel shame around different other things that I haven't had the right information given to me around or that I've been told have to be a certain way. If you apply that kind of methodology to sexuality, you know, it's the messages that you had growing up or the lack of messages that you had growing up around sexuality about being open around but all bodies are beautiful you know all colors are amazing you know all skin types are amazing and i i think like it's really sad to me that we've grown up in a culture where especially as vulva owners we've been taught that we have to look a certain way we have to fit into a certain box you know and we try and shrink ourselves, make ourselves smaller to fit what a patriarchal society is telling us that we need to be. And that's just not okay, you know, and it, it, it impacts on mental health, you know, it impacts on quality of life. People take their lives over that kind of thing. And I think that um, we, like, I have to address that and I would love to address it even more so than what I've done in the book because there's so much to unpack there. Mm. But for every single person that comes into my clinic, there's an element of shame that's attached to them because they've been told that their way of viewing sexuality is not normal or like if they're LGBTQIA+, like that's only been little leaps and bounds in terms of even being recognized through legislation over the past few years and being able to have, you know, gay marriage, like that wasn't that long ago. So I really feel sad that this generation is having to work so hard when we could have had all of this accepted years and years ago, you know, but I'm, I'm also feeling very blessed to be amongst a lot of change leaders in this time so that the next generation feels safer. Yeah. Um, okay. So you also discuss porn a little bit in your book. Mm-hmm. Um, and I know myself, my first introduction, one of my first introductions to sex was through porn, mm-hmm. through a porn magazine, because we didn't have the internet <laughs> in those days. Um, and to be honest, it was pretty horrific, right? Mm-hmm. I was about eight or nine. I was at school. And so what are some of the concerns around pornography as an educational tool rather than a positive thing within a relationship? Pornography is not for education, it's for entertainment. So, you know, it's become, I guess, a bit problematic because first of all, it wasn't a very well taken care of industry. Second of all, we didn't learn that it's for um, for entertainment. We learned that that's how we should be having sex. We should look like that. Our body should look like that. We should yell like that. We should, our vulva should look this way. Our penises should look this way. And it's just not realistic. It's not representative. But there are amazing um, directors out there, pornography directors that are working really hard on on um, making this area a lot more ethical. So I'm very grateful for that. And then I guess, you know, in terms of like messages around pornography when we're younger, there should be some conversations around that and just say like, 
this is a certain type of sex. This is not how realistic sex looks, you know. Um, and I think moving forward, there, sh you know, there will be a lot more coming out around how to actually talk to kids about porn, um, and you know, make it make it known that that's actually, you know, sex is a bit different. It's a bit messier. It's sweatier. It's a bit awkward sometimes, and you have to chat to each other, and you have to feel good, and you know, we have different abilities in the bedroom, and some things will work, and some things won't work, you know. And I think that that's a conversation that was needed when we were younger but like everything was behind closed doors and everything kind of still is we're not really at that place yet i think um look i really loved how in your book you rephrased the first time people have sex as being a sexual debut mm -hmm. as opposed to losing your virginity can you yeah. um talk a little bit about that idea yeah so you know what sexuality is so it's put in such a box and i guess people have this narrative of how it's meant to look virginity is a construct it doesn't exist you know you don't pop a cherry the hymen is like a little piece of skin that's inside the vagina it doesn't tear and break so much that it like pops out it's just there like it might not even it, it, it all of them have a little hole in it anyway and i think like this narrative around your first sexual experience has to be penis in vagina sex you know we know that that's not realistic for for a huge amount of our community um but i also think like what about like just sexual activities that you want to label as sex you know and there's nothing to take like i'm not going to be able to take anything from you if we have a a sexual interaction i think it's it's such a construct that has been i guess like how would i say like glorified in movies like take the virginity or like oh blah 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 stole my virginity like it's a bit dramatic to me you know why don't we talk about how getting together for the first time and pr practicing or trying out some new things in the bedroom that's just like fun and hopefully consensual, mm. um, you know, and it should be an enjoyable experience that you don't have to say means anything except that you've had a sexual debut. You've started looking into playing, you know, with yourself or with others sexually. Um, so a large part of sex education is around having sex safely. Mm -hmm. Yet there's still a lot of stigma and fear around STIs in our community. Mm -hmm. um, and in the book, you also address how both doctors and patients are still embarrassed to speak to each other about sex. So what do you think needs to happen to improve this conversation? I think that um, the medical system just needs a, a little bit of a, a helping hand and probably there needs to be more sexologists out there that feel like they are able to educate, you know, in the medical profession but I also think we we live in a bit of a disjointed kind of medical community you know I would love for things to be a little bit more collaborative and we're slowly getting there but there's this you know there's so much further to go as well um, and I think just if you think about like 
patience when you feel like something's wrong with you you don't actually often know how to articulate it you're relying on the medical expert to know exactly what's going on but in the medical degrees they really they have like a one-hour lecture on sexuality so it's very hard to to diagnose someone who's having problems when you don't actually know what's going on with them and you have to act also like look at your own narratives like do i feel comfortable with sexuality you know do i feel good about talking about this are there other people present in the room like a mother or a partner can I talk about it in front of them like there are so many barriers to talking about sex that we probably need to I guess reframe and reshape to make it a lot easier for doctors who are already having a hard time you know having 15 minutes to to get a sense of what's going on with someone sex is you know a lot of it's in the brain that's the biggest sexual organ so 15 minutes really isn't a long enough time to be getting a sense of what's happening for that person and their sex life so working with sexologists is a brilliant way to go um there's a, a chapter in your book on dating mm-hmm. um and there's your address being single mm-hmm. I really identify with what you were talking about because I think in our society there isn't just stigma and shame associated with sex. There's also a lot of stigma and shame that's associated with not being in a relationship. So if you're single, there's something wrong with you. Mm-hmm. But can you talk a little bit about this, how you address it in the book? Well, <laughs> I mean, single's great. I think being single's fun. I love being single. You don't have to answer to anyone except yourself. You wear what you want. You eat what you want. You go to bed whatever time you want. And, um, you know, I I really think like being single is such a beautiful time in your in your life. And I, I, I always thought it was so super interesting in Australia how we we glorified like being in a relationship and you know having a white picket fence and pumping out kids and it's all a little bit scary it it was quite scary to me you know um and i think like for me i always found that process like why we prescribed a certain type of life i find that really a little bit challenging i think it's a bit disturbing to be honest that we're told that we should be a certain way and that being in a couple is better In a lot of the cases, it's not better. You know, like there are so many bad relationships out there, but people feel like they need to stay in them because it's just a relationship, you know, because why would you split up with blah, blah, blah? Your life is comfortable. You're okay. You know, there's domestic violence going on and people are scared to leave their partners. Um, And I find that if we can make like, being single what it is sexy and fun and for an adventure and for a story like i loved being single i loved going on dates i love the amount of stories that i got and you know the people that i met and the places i went i mean i went all across the world being single um i did the same why... I traveled for a year on my own and people just thought it was weird yeah i loved it, <laughs> I loved it. and i think like I wish that we could glorify being single and being with yourself more, sitting with yourself, you know, working on yourself. All of that is super important. Um, And I feel really, I feel for my friends as well. And like for other people in my community, like that maybe haven't even had a relationship or that might've had a few relationships, they don't work out for a reason. 
you know we and we also need to say like relationships it's not a disney movie like relationships are hard they're gritty there's tension you know but if you have things like expectations of who you're meant to be and who the other person is going to be there's always going to be resentment there right so I think there's a whole lot more that we need to say in terms of being single and also being in relationships, talking about the the kind of gray areas there and how to navigate them and also how to just like be secure in yourself enough to be in that relationship is super important. Um, so, you know, I have some rules for dating in the book and I, I always say like, just go for the story. Like you want to have a good story to tell your friends, especially now we've been so boring in COVID, like go dating, go to get some stories from me. <laughs> I want to hear them. <laughs> and you, speaking of that, you have checklists in your book as well, which I loved because I love a bit of homework. Mm -hmm. <laughs> mm -hmm. So um, just to wrap up, because we're coming up to our 20 minutes, um, what do you want people to get out of this book and how can those checklists that you have at the back of your book help people to have good sex? They are there as a guide, as a friendly helping hand. You know, it's me and you against whatever concerns that you have. I just want people to feel like this book allows a safe space for them to learn. I hope it allows them to be a little bit more curious and I hope that it normalizes a lot of people and where they're feeling within their sexuality as well. Um, I hope that it's also inclusive enough for people because of course, you know, the world is changing in terms of how we view sexuality and gender. And I think that our literature is going to start catching up to that too. Um, I hope that it will. And, you know, I also just think like, I want people to have a bit of fun when they're learning about sex. I really hope that the, the kind of language that I use seems like you're talking to a big sister or like a friend, you know, I don't want anyone to feel like they're, it's so clinical that they, they feel uncomfortable within the book. I want them to feel like this is okay. And it's funny, you know, and I can, I can do this. If it's, if it sounds like this, I can learn more. Yes. Well, it is, there is a lot of fun in the book and it is mm -hmm. funny and it is very informative as well. So congratulations. I really enjoyed reading it. Thank you for joining me today. And I hope all our listeners enjoyed it as well. Um, you can pick up your copy of the Sex Edge You Never Had by Chantel from a bookstore near you soon, or you can order it online from Booktopia. Thanks again for listening and never stop reading. Thanks to our guests, Christos Jolkis, Sarah Foster, and Chantelle Otten. And thanks to you for listening. You can find links to the books discussed today in our show notes or head over to booktopia.com.au. Stay tuned on Friday for our next episode where we'll be discussing the books we're reading at the moment. And then please join us for next week's interview show, which will be a YA spectacular featuring Amy Kaufman, Jay Christoph, and Garth Nix. As always, thanks for listening and never stop reading.